Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Fresnel as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Hey, Leah. Hey, Phelan. I finally figured out the details of a very wild bit of history that has been in the back of my mind since we started the show. Really? So it's been there for three years? Yes. I get on my ideas real fast, as you can see. Yeah, it's actually something that Erin Brandenburg mentioned to me in passing. Erin, as you know, is a friend of the show. She's a writer and theater creator, and she helped us research for season one. Yes, Erin is great. Yeah, she is amazing, actually. And while we were working on this first episode of ours, which was about how during World War I, interned laborers built the town of Banff, she mentioned that her grandfather was in a prison camp near Banff during World War II. While he was there, he heard that people were working on some sort of secret mission that had to do with a house made of ice or a boat made out of ice. Okay, that's weird, but you've piqued my interest. What did she tell you? She told me that her grandfather was a, a CO, CO or a conscientious, conscientious objector, objector. During World War II, which is like, he's Mennonite, so they are historically peace churches, which means they don't believe in, in violence. And so during World War II, instead of fighting, they were conscientious objectors. And basically what they had to do, they were in these work camps that were... Yeah, all around Canada, but he was in um, one called CB, which is in the Kananaskis Valley. Aaron's grandfather's name was Harry Block, and like Aaron said, he was a Mennonite. Mennonites are a Christian religious group, and many arrived in Canada in the late 1800s. They came from places like Russia, Switzerland, and Germany. Like Aaron mentioned, a core belief for Mennonites is nonviolence, and so when World War II happened, many of the men who were expected to join in battle refused because of their religious beliefs. They were ostracized for this and seen as traitors. There's actually an account that in 1940, two Mennonite churches were burned down on the same day in Alberta over it. Wow. Yeah, it was bad. But these peace churches, they always held this belief system. You know, it wasn't new just because of World War II. So how many people in these work camps were conscientious objectors or CEOs? More than 10,000, which included Mennonites and other pacifist religious groups like Quakers, Dukabors, and Hutterites. So CEOs like Harry were given a choice of what work they could do. It was either in the medical corps or you could work in a national park. Harry chose the park work along with 95% of the other CEOs. It was hard and brutal work, but many felt better about it than going to war. They did stuff like clearing trails and planting trees and kind of clearing roads and stuff like that. So they're basically working in the bush during the war. So Harry is in this work camp in Kananaskis, which is pretty close to Banff National Park. Jasper National Park is also in Alberta, albeit is much farther away, but just to give people who might not know the park system in Alberta a frame. And, you know, these guys are working all day, and besides work, there's really not much to do. So they would talk. And Harry starts hearing this story about an ice house. 
So my grandfather was in the Kananaskis Valley, but a lot of the guys were transferred between different camps and stuff, depending on you know, what they needed done. And so he started hearing these stories from these guys who were working up near Jasper about this super secret project that they weren't allowed to talk about, but a lot of them didn't actually know anything about it anyway, but they called it the Ice House. Somewhere on a secluded lake, this super secret thing, they were basically like, they had no idea what was going on and like nobody told them what they were actually working on, but it was something to do with ice and sawdust and they were basically like hauling sawdust for miles and miles into the bush and like building this ice house is what they called it. When I started to do some research on a play I was working on, I was asking my grandfather about, you know, the kind of stuff he was doing and the kind of work they were they were doing in the camps. And this ice house kept coming up and they're like, ice house? What are you talking about? This ice house? Yes. Yeah. The famous ice boat. I'm like, well, what the heck is that? And he's like, I don't know. We were just, they were building this thing in the wilderness. So it just kind of always stuck with me as a very strange. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a strange visual. First of all, an ice house. Okay. Well, this sounds to me like I got to get to the bottom of this and figure out what this ice boat house thing was. Cause I, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. It's definitely uh, one of those weird details you read in the books and you're like, Okay. What is this? What is this? Okay, so what was it? So it wasn't a house or a boat. It was an enormous sea vessel made out of ice that the Allied forces decided to try and build during World War II. The British government thought that a ship made out of ice would be cheaper to make, harder to sink, and would be their secret weapon. For a minute there, I thought you were going to say it wasn't a house or a boat. It was a houseboat. <laughs> and that begins our movie. Yeah. No. <laughs> yes, yes. No, yes. it was a big ship. And they needed a place cold enough and remote enough that no spy would ever find out what they were doing. And so everyone agreed that it would be up to one country to make it happen. Canada. And the super secret location would be Patricia Lake in Jasper, Alberta. So this is going to be a story of how a Jewish inventor from the UK came up with one of the most eye-opening plans to win the war. And then what happened when Canada took it on and tried to build an enormous ship out of ice using the labor of conscientious objectors. Their mission was called Operation Habakkuk. So how did Canada end up trying to make a giant ship? made out of ice. Well, by 1942, things were not going well in the war for the British Royal Navy and the Allies. Right. World War II began in 1939 and lasted until 1945. And it involved a lot of different countries, hence the name World War. But many countries were fighting in conjunction with two main groups, the Allies and the Axis. The Allies consisted of the United States, the Soviet Union, now known as Russia and Great Britain, and they were fighting against the Axis, which consisted of of Italy, Japan, and Germany, which was being led by Hitler. I don't know if you've ever heard about that guy. Anyway, <laughs> Canada was part of the Allied forces. Right. We were trying to defeat the Nazis, which is always a good plan. But like I said, by 1942, things were not going well at sea for the Allied forces. The Battle of the Atlantic would be the longest military campaign in World War II. It was a contest of who controlled that area of the ocean and was fought between the Allies and Germany. Basically what happened was German underwater boats, called U-boats, would attack and sink Allied ships that were trying to get supplies across from North America to Europe. 
These supplies were critical for feeding people. The British were heavily dependent on foreign imports for food before the war, and then during the war they struggled to feed their population. The Allied ships were also transporting troops, weapons, just loads of stuff that were instrumental in the war. The U-boats were hard to track and became a devastating weapon for the Nazis. So why didn't they use planes? I feel like, I, you know, in all those newsreel sort of clips, I always see planes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they did use planes, but at this time you couldn't just use planes to carry that much weight. And while aircrafts did help, you know, to give the ships cover as they were going across the sea, they couldn't fly all the way across the Atlantic at this time without stopping. Mm. Back then, they just didn't have that range. They would have to stop and then refuel. So the German U-boats, which are submarines, by the way, in case anyone's wondering, they torpedoed 400 Allied ships between January and July of one year in 1942, while at the same time only seven German U-boats were destroyed. So that means critical supplies were lost, but also thousands and thousands of people on those ships, they were killed as a result. Yeah, it was terrible. People started calling that area past where the planes could protect you the Black Pit. A huge number of Canadians lost their lives during this battle. It's stated that out of the 2,000 members of the Royal Canadian Navy that died during the war, the majority were actually killed during this Battle of the Atlantic. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's very bad. Yeah. Yeah, things were really, really bad. And the Allied forces were pretty desperate, you know, to find a solution. Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain at the time, felt that they needed to come up with an out-of-the-box idea because all of the regular military tactics were failing. So the British government put it out there that they wanted proposals. And however bizarre they might seem, they would be willing to consider it. That sounds like a <laughs> recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah. No. It's like a dragon's den for war. Um, that's okay. true. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> kind of. Actually, that's a really good way to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so you know, who, who was coming up with these ideas? You know, it's mostly scientists, military experts. But, you know, one guy in particular really stood out and his name was Jeffrey Pike. And was he a military person or a scientist? Or He was, I would say he was undefinable, mm. if I'm being honest. He was a scientist, but he was also an educator. He was a journalist and a bunch of other things. He was an outsider. You know, he was Jewish and occupying spaces in the UK at this time where a lot of Jewish people were not. And he was always described by you know, a certain group of people as an oddball. He dressed differently than his peers. And I think even without his distinct ideas, he stood out. By the time World War II came around, people knew that Jeffrey Pike was a man who thought most things were just a problem with a solution yet to be found. And he proved that because he famously escaped the Ruhleben detention camp, a German POW camp during World War I. Oh, wow. That's really intense. So when World War I began... Okay, so 1914? That's right, 1914. Jeffrey Pike was a teenage college dropout who left school to be a war correspondent. He desperately wanted to be a journalist. So he drops out and gets a job with a newspaper. They give him a phony passport so he could sneak into Germany. Pike took his fake passport, entered Germany, and then settled into his role as a war correspondent. I would have totally, like, had a crush on this guy. 
Right? <laughs> he sounds like college dropout. Oh, no. <laughs> like college dropout. Sneaking into Germany. War correspondent. <laughs> yeah, like dress is different. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's totally my type. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Crossing borders with fake passwords. I'm so into that stuff. I, I mean, but kind of. It sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was very spy stuff. You know, he was doing things like hanging out in cafes, pretending to read newspapers, but listening in on people's conversations. I like do that, that all kind the time. I Which did. I mean, <laughs> oh, that's weird. Anyway, um, <laughs> eventually Germany noticed this guy that was, you know, just kind of listening in on everybody's conversations and they arrested him and sent him to this internment camp, which was a detention camp for civilians. It wasn't good, but there were lots of British people in the camp with him. So he ended up becoming friends with a guy and they both decide that they're going to try and escape. They try to get more people involved, but the other prisoners are not into this idea because they've seen other people try and fail and then get shot because of it. So nobody else really takes them up on this idea. No, but Jeffrey gets his journalist hat on and starts interviewing people about why their previous attempts failed. He studies every inch of the camp and then, finally planning an escape, he and his friend do it. They make it all the way back to Amsterdam safely, and they did that after surviving a full year in the camp. Like, that is really impressive, and also I feel like I've just watched three movies listening to you talk already. It's actually so remarkable that he was able to do this, and after seeing war firsthand, he writes a book about his experience, which becomes a huge hit because, you know, just even this little part of the story that I told you, you're mm-hmm. you're already engaged. Yes. It was called To Rue Lieben and Back, and it's one of the only firsthand descriptions of life in a First World War detention camp. He did all of that by age 20. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He really made a name for himself then. Yeah, he was no no slouch, which came in handy when the government starts asking for outside-of-the-box plans. Pike has been trying to invent things to help with the war effort for years, and some of his inventions were pretty out there. More on that after the break. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Cryptoland. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. So Jeffrey Pike is trying to help the Allies win the war. And everyone knows that to get one good idea, you usually have 10 bad ones before that. Like one of his ideas was to build a searchlight that would bring down any plane in its beam. The premise was the beam of light would focus onto the plane and then solidify, thereby trapping the plane and bringing it down. He didn't ever figure out how to do it, though, so it's not a terrible idea if there was, you know, a way to solidify a beam of light, but... Not my boyfriend's finest plan. I get it. I get no, it. So, no, no, I'm sorry. It was I'm not. Saying, yeah, Jeffrey, lightsabers don't exist. <laughs> well, Star Wars. Star Wars made them. But... You know what? It's interesting that you bring up Star Wars because, mm-hmm. fun fact, Star Wars creator George Lucas was inspired very much by World War II, you know, this time period and the fight against fascism when he was creating the series. 
oh, I can see this. Because a lot of the film's mythology revolves around fighting bad guys, which Lucas named stormtroopers. It's the same name that the Nazis gave their military forces. Mm-hmm. Also, the Imperial officers in the movie, who are also bad guys, have uniforms. And they look very similar to the German army's uh, World War II uniforms. And if you're watching The Mandalorian, I'm not <laughs> fully caught up. No spoilers. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers. But you can definitely see that influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot in there. Like this famous line from character Obi-Wan Kenobi in the 1977 film Star Wars A New Hope, which alludes to the six million Jewish people murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust. I felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. So a pike has all of these kind of out there ideas. Yes, and none of them are really possible, right? But then he starts thinking about ice a lot because the British government asked him to solve the problem of ice building up underneath and on boats in Arctic waters. As he was doing that work, he realized it actually doesn't take a lot of money or effort to make ice as opposed to the resources it takes to make steel. Right, which is what most boats and weaponry would have been made out of during the war. Correct. So he comes up with this idea. What if we made a huge aircraft carrier out of an iceberg? His thinking was, maybe we could level them out and then planes could land on the top of the icebergs, refuel, and then take off again so they could continue protecting the ships trying to cross the ocean. Okay, so I guess it's a a use-what-you-have mentality. Like, ice is out there and there's water all around you. So I guess it it wouldn't be a problem if you, you know, wanted to make more ice. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like this is the point where you have to be like, baby, (laughs) baby, we got to sit down and talk about this. And how would you even like, you know, level off an iceberg? It was an idea. It was at the idea stage and there were some issues, but he types up this huge report and sends it off to the powers that be. Churchill reads it in December of 1942 and writes a response to it where he said, I attach the greatest importance to the examination of these ideas. The advantages of a floating island, or islands, if only used as refueling depots for aircrafts are so dazzling that they do not at the moment need to be discussed. The scheme is only possible if we let nature do nearly all the work for us. Use as raw material, seawater, and low temperatures. The scheme will be destroyed if it involves the movement of very large numbers of men and heavy tonnage of steel or concrete to the remote recesses of the Arctic night. I have no idea what I just said there. So basically what he's saying is that he's really excited about the plans, but they can't spend a lot of money on building this thing. And he thinks that can happen because they're planning to only use water as a resource. Like they can't use steel or a ton of men to build it. Churchill's message was marked top secret and sent back. And then the build plan began with a committee of members developing what they would now call Habakkuk. And what does that mean? Or, or, you know, does it have a meaning? It refers to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5, which is in the Old Testament Bible. I looked it up, and it's a story of a prophet asking God, you know, why good people suffer and why cruel people seem to succeed, which is something I would like to know and is a good question. And God responded with this. Phelan? Behold ye among the heathens. Sorry, you know what? Let me me take that again. 
Behold ye among the heathens, regard and be utterly astounded, for I will do a work in your days which ye will never believe, even if someone told you. Wow, you have range, my friend. A real Morgan Freeman. (laughs) That was amazing, amazing. Okay, thank you. Anyway, so I think they called it Habakkuk because that quote is about creating something that, you know, had never been created before. Yeah. But very quickly they realized ice was too thin to withstand anything, really. And you can't use an iceberg because most of an iceberg sits underwater. And the section above water is too small to hold a lot of weight, like a bunch of planes. Of course, they would sink really fast. So they realized they would just have to build the thing out of ice themselves. This is another moment where I'd be like, baby, (laughs) baby, have you thought this out? Let's sit down. Let's talk I, about it. I'm disturbed at how fast you've become in love with the person that you've only heard about for five minutes. And, mm, okay. you know, it's okay. okay for love to be reciprocated, Phil. And that's what I would say to you. And he's also <laughs> very much dead. So anyway. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. I know. It's 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 a hard. It's hard to learn this kind of info. But yes. God, it's been such a quick relationship <laughs> between the two of us. <laughs> okay. So the operation figured out that when you mix water and wood fibers and froze that, it actually creates a material stronger than pure ice. The substance was called picrete, which is the combination of Jeffrey Pike's last name and concrete. Piecrete. Okay, gotcha. When this piece of the puzzle was achieved, the story goes that a piecrete ice cube was taken to Churchill, Lord Mountbatten. Right. He was on the crown, right? The, yes. the guy from the crown. Right. Yeah. He's yeah. the uncle of Prince Charles and Prince Philip, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. You know, who's the queen's husband. Anyway, Mountbatten, among other things, had a really central role in botching the partition of India, which led to terrible violence and death. Yeah, they didn't show that in the crown. Right. They left a lot mm-hmm. out of the crown. They, yeah, you know what? I've noticed some holes. I've noticed some holes. <laughs> Some big plot holes, but Mount Baden was in charge of this project, so he brought the piecrete ice cube to Churchill's house. And as Winston Churchill was weirdly well known for hanging out in his bathtub as much as possible, Mount Baden walked into his bathroom as and, you do, as you do, and put the piecrete ice cube into Churchill's bath water. That's so like it, I, I feel like I've seen a film that starts this way. <laughs> Some real unfortunate visuals, yes. But as Mountbatten and Churchill watched, the piecrete ice cube didn't melt in the steamy old man bathwater. It actually. I've had I've had a cocktail called that actually, the steamy old man bathwater with piecrete ice cubes. That doesn't surprise me in the least. I, know, I don't know why I was trying in to sell least. that to you. <laughs> like, n- not a surprise. But it didn't melt, so Operation Habakkuk got permission to produce the material in larger quantities and then do further tests. Okay, so they know they have a new kind of ice that won't melt as fast as they can possibly use it to build this ice ship. When does Canada become a part of the plan? Okay, so in 1943, the designers now had on paper an enormous ship that they were hoping would fit 334 officers, almost a thousand crewmen, as well as tons of military equipment. They also wanted it to be torpedo proof. And they were getting to the point where they realized, you know what, we just need to start building this thing to see if this can actually work. So the Allies came together to try and figure out, you know, where can we build this? It had to be remote. 
The Americans offered Alaska and Russia suggested Siberia, but it was thought that it actually might be too cold in Siberia and Alaska would be too difficult to get supplies to and from. There was only one place they knew they could build this ship, Canada. We were cold, but not too cold, and had enough roads at the time into remote areas, but not enough that were easily accessible. So Churchill called up the Canadian Prime Minister, Mackenzie King. Mackenzie King is on record for being one of Canada's longest-serving prime ministers. He was in office for 21 years. Yeah, and so this is kind of towards the end of his run. And, you know, he's trying to get the country through the war. And so Churchill says, can you folks help us make an ice boat? And is that a direct quote? It's paraphrased, but Mackenzie King said, sure, of course, Canada will build this secret ice ship. And then he hung up the phone and wrote this in his diary. The ice boat assignment from Churchill is another one of those mad wild schemes that started with a couple of crazy men in England. And by the way, folks, that is a direct quote, and that is John Wayne starring as Mackenzie King, Canadian know. Prime Minister. Beautifully done. Thank but you. I think we have all worked, you know, on group projects where you kind of disagree with your team, but mm-hmm. you don't want to fail the class, so you yeah. go for it. And, you know, failure here would mean more lives lost. So Mackenzie King gets in touch with the National Research Council of Canada. Which was and is a government organization that specializes in scientific research and development. Right. So the council gathered a group of scientists and engineers in secret and gave them the Operation Habakkuk files. And their response was, what is wrong with the British? (laughs) Obviously, they don't spend a lot of time in the cold. This is not possible. (laughs) So the National Research Council team didn't think that the Habakkuk would work. No, but, you know, they also talked about it and said, look, they've been doing all these tests. They did create this pie creep material. And, you know, we at least have to try and give it a chance because people are dying. Right. So it's like we have to make this work. We're in a desperate situation. We should try. Yeah, exactly. So research begins all across Canada. Small teams in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario and Quebec all got to work on it. And so how did it all end up in Jasper? Well, first they thought they were going to do it in Churchill, Manitoba, but it was actually too cold there to work outdoors for as long as they needed to 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 build it. And then it was going to be Cornerbrook in Newfoundland because it was, you know, cold. It was near uh, pulp and paper mills. So they thought they could build the pie creek Mm -hmm. faster. But Cornerbrook didn't actually have enough local workers. And Newfoundland wasn't a province in Canada yet. Right, because it wouldn't become a province until 1949. Right. Although it was still considered a British colony. But, you know, Newfoundland, they were fighting alongside with Canada and the Allies, but it was just decided it was going to be too much red tape to try and do it there because, you know, the government of Canada would have to go through the government of Newfoundland Mm -hmm. and people were just afraid that it was going to take too long to get it built. So they chose Patricia Lake in Jasper because it was thought no spy would think, you know, there was a big top secret operation going on Mm. there. Jasper had a small population and Patricia Lake was far away from town, but close to a generating station by the hotel, Jasper Park Lodge. It was easy to restrict access to it and cold and remote enough while still having a railway close by so they could get things in and out. The biggest reason it was chosen, though, is that there was a huge source of free labor nearby. Ah, so the camps with the conscientious objectors like Aaron's grandfather, Harry. Exactly. So they took off the top 15 conscientious objectors and put them to work on Habakkuk. And like Aaron said in the beginning, 
none of them knew what they were building. What they started working on really looked like a barn or a house, which is why Harry kept calling it the ice house. They were tasked to build a box which was 60 by 30 feet wide and 20 feet high, out of wood and ice. So this wasn't the ship. It was more like a like a test. It was a smaller model of what it could be. They were trying to build a really huge block of ice that could be insulated and that would float. The COs had to work around the clock to get it done. So there were two 11-hour shifts, one day and one night. That's a long time to be outside. I'm assuming it'd be really cold, too. It was. And when the COs found that they were creating a huge military ship, they staged a sit-in and refused to continue working on it. (sighs) The whole reason they're in there is because they're objecting to the war. So what happened to them after that? Well, they were sent back to the camp and 15 more COs who had no idea what they were working on were brought in and so on and so forth. It was just like waiting to the point where people went, wait a minute, kind of. So they were cutting ice blocks out of the lake and then basically trying to seal them into a really huge ice block. For size, think like as large as a school gym. That is huge. And then they covered the ice with a wood floor and then insulated that wood floor with asphalt, which seems mind-boggling to me, but they did it. Asphalt is hot when you pour it out. But yeah, it's hot. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't understand how they did that. But after many attempts, they got it to work. One of the things they did do is they designed piping that flowed with coolant to run underneath the floorboards. But, you know, every time they would put more weight on the floor, the asphalt would cave in. Mm. And so they just couldn't get it to float. They then figured out that ice was actually forming underneath the water and was weighing down the structure. It's very much like the iceberg thing, right? So when they finally figured that out, the structure actually started to float because they they took off all the ice that was kind of building up on the bottom. And they thought, well, maybe this can work. They put a roof on top of it, and that's why it looked like a house. It was really a long kind of wood-looking house on the outside, floating on the lake, but a top-secret ice boat on the inside. Some of the men called it Noah's Ark because it definitely does have that vibe when you see the pictures, which we will link to on our social accounts. Right. Okay, so it sounds like the insulated ice and put a structure on top of it, and this plan was working? Well... Not really, actually, because they <laughs> okay. they built the test model out of ice, not piecrete. They hadn't started that step yet. They still had to do that part. And Mackenzie King was concerned because he thought it would take a full year, probably until 1944, to build a piecrete version. Canada figured out that a real full-size ship would need 280,000 blocks of piecrete and around 8,000 people to actually build it. The estimated cost was $100 million. Okay, so $100 million in 1943 would be, let me see, carry the four. It's mind-boggling, I don't know. (laughs) It's mind-boggling. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. And, you know, it was really up to Canada to decide if it could be built. And, you know, Mackenzie King just felt that the project was overwhelming due to the time limitations and the construction. So in May 1943, King put a halt to the project and went to England to meet with Churchill. So did Mackenzie King get his own bath for the meeting or did him and Churchill share or? (laughs) Well, actually, I think for a meeting of this magnitude, they showered together but remained in their suits. It was more professional that way, obviously. A sign of respect. 
Yeah. So Mackenzie told Churchill the truth that Habakkuk was a complicated plan that couldn't be built quickly, and he just didn't think it was possible to construct Jeffrey Pike's design. And how did Churchill take that? Not well. He told Mountbatten, who was a huge champion of the project, and they were both upset. A couple months later, the Allies met in secret in Quebec City. They had gathered to plan for the Allied invasions of France and Italy. And there's a story that during this conference, Mountbatten decided that as a last-ditch effort, they had to convince the Americans that the ship could work. So Mountbatten comes into this conference room with all these world leaders— He rolls in a huge block of piecrete and a huge block of ice in the door and then pulls out his gun. Everyone hits the floor. He fires two shots into each block and the bullet that hit the piecrete ricocheted off of it, whizzed through some guy's pant leg and then hit the wall. Man, the good old days, hey? (laughs) Remember the days when we could have a meeting and pull out our guns and, and, you know, just fire Fire some shots into the room? You really want to, you know, I'm just trying to prove a point by firing a gun irresponsibly. (laughs) Okay. So then what happens? (laughs) It just shows how obsessed with the idea he was and how much he wanted to show everyone how amazing Piecrete was. Of course, when the shots rang out inside a super secret conference room, military police rushed in and found everyone on the floor. Some people were laughing about it and some not so much. Churchill asked the Americans to take on Habakkuk because he felt like the Canadians were losing confidence in the plan. Okay, and so how did the Americans fare at building this? Well, they didn't really. D-Day happened. D-Day began on Tuesday, the 6th of June, 1944, and... It was an enormous Allied invasion in Normandy, France. It would be instrumental in paving the way to victory for the Allies. Yeah, and things had turned around in the Atlantic. New military tactics meant U-boats were being destroyed and convoys were able to cross successfully. So the need for Habakkuk was no longer urgent and was downgraded to a low-priority issue in Britain. Jeffrey Pike was devastated, not only that the plan wasn't moving forward, but by the treatment he received for years from many who were involved in the project. Many of them dismissed him and saw him as weird and complicated and annoying and began not taking his other ideas seriously. However, Mountbatten wrote to him. I'm leaving SEOHQ today, and I feel that I must write to thank you for all that you've done for me during the past 18 months. Probably the most bold and imaginative scheme of this war owes its inception to you. It is still too secret to refer to in a letter of this nature. But one day I feel that you will be able to look with pride on this child of your imagination. When the war ended, Pike continued on with inventions, but nothing really stuck. Maybe it was bad luck, or maybe he was just ahead of his time, but eventually life's challenges took their toll on Pike. He ended up taking his own life in 1948 without ever trademarking Pikerite. Well, that's terrible. I know. It's terrible and it sucks, and especially since his invention has somewhat of a cult following today. Pikecrete sword test number two in three, two, one. A viewer suggested making Pikecrete out of Kevlar, and we're going to find out if this material is bulletproof or if you prefer bullet resistant. Hello. I'm Lauri. And I'm Anni. And this is big pile of Pikecrete, and we are going to test this against our old friend Red Hot Steel. 
All you have to do is type piecrete into Google and countless videos of people shooting blocks of the stuff or making, you know, quote unquote, indestructible swords and snow forts. Mythbusters even has an episode where they try to make a speedboat all out of piecrete. Uh, that's really cool. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch mm-hmm. that. But speaking of boats, what happened to, you know, to this ice boat once the war ended? Mackenzie King ordered the floating prototype on Patricia Lake destroyed. It took three summers for the ice ship prototype to completely melt. And the National Research Council wrote a report about the Habakkuk saying, A scheme of this magnitude undertaken in wartime is necessarily a gamble and was recognized to be so from the start. The material collected and the research initiated will provide an admirable basis for further ice engineering research useful to all countries with severe winters. Operation Habakkuk would remain classified for 35 years. Decades later, divers in Patricia Lake were shocked to find four wooden walls with pieces of asphalt, wires, and piping sitting at the bottom of the lake. Their find would bring the project to light. In 1989, the National Research Council erected a plaque commemorating the site. And so if you're ever in Jasper, go stand at the edge of Patricia Lake and look real close into the middle of that water you might just see the wreck of the secret ice ship that was once called Habakkuk. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit. It was written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. Our producer is TK Matunda and our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger. The digital producer of CBC Podcasts is Fabiola Melendez-Carletti. Senior producer is Tina Verma and executive producer is RF Nurani. You can find us on social media at The Secret Life of Canada and our email is secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.